The hour to which the podcast adjourned having arrived, the podcast is now in order. Let's gavel in for this week's State House Takeout with the reporters on top of Beacon Hill at the State House News Service. Here's Sam Doran. And welcome back to the State House Takeout. It's been four months, I think, give or take. Uh, but the State House Takeout is back, coming to you from the State House News Service newsroom in room 458 of the Massachusetts State House and diverse other places as Zoom and other technology allows. Uh, for joining us is Matt Murphy, live from Method, Massachusetts. Yeah, it's, it's good to be back, Sam, and good to still be broadcasting from an undisclosed location somewhere in a bunker near Boston. Near Boston. We'll go with that. Um, uh, the Statehouse Takeout is most definitely back, and we're embarking on a new format where we'll have a reporter join us to recap a bit of the week's events, or in this case four months' worth of events, give or take. Uh, And then we will have another news service reporter moderate an interesting discussion with some panelists each week. And coming up after Matt Murphy does his thing, we're going to have Chris Lisinski talking with three transit advocates, transportation funding advocates, um, about that particular issue. Uh, But before we dive into the transit world... Matt, um, this is a once-in-a-generation kind of news cycle. We, or maybe once-in-a-lifetime news cycle, we've gone about four months with one topic in the headlines. We've gone from what would normally be the months leading up to the end of formal sessions in an election year where advocates would have been marching around the marble corridors of the state house chanting slogans in support of their cause or preferred bill um we've gone from giant uh, uh masses of lawmakers uh heading into caucus or session uh to this kind of bizarre upside down of daily press briefings with the governor as he talks about response to the virus, uh, virtual hearings, virtual legislative sessions. Um, it's different. It's different, but some of the topics are the same. Um, what's, what's your sense of this 2020 news cycle? Yes, and this has really been a whirlwind of a four months. And, you know, the, the last time we talked, the last time we uh, podcasted and uh, ordered or uh, got some takeout together on a Friday afternoon. I think, uh, you know, we were talking about things like transportation revenue uh, that you'll talk uh, with Chris about later and some of our guests. Uh, we were coming off a Super Tuesday election here in Massachusetts, uh, looking ahead to a presidential contest, a major Senate race. The coronavirus has uh, or at least for a while, put a lot of those candidates I- into their homes uh, on virtual Zoom calls. Uh, Vice President Joe Biden became the presumptive Democratic nominee and has largely been running a campaign from his basement in Delaware. I mean, we could not have predicted any of those things. And the action on Beacon Hill is really no different. I think uh, the things that we thought we would be talking about uh, come uh, the middle of July with 
two weeks left in formal sessions, uh, wrapping up the two-year legislative uh, session, which is always a frenzied period where uh, you know proposals are flying around. Uh, no one's really sure what's going to get done at the finish line. But a lot of the things that we were talking about uh, back in the, the beginning of the year uh, seem to be almost uh, distant memories and not really the top priorities that we're talking about today. Yeah, I mean, to, to what extent do you think the pandemic has hindered legislative progress on priorities? Because, I mean, on the one hand, uh, the pandemic has interrupted all sorts of uh, facets of our lives. But on the other hand, the House and Senate have continued to hold virtual caucuses, virtual sessions, and they're still capable of fast-tracking bills when they want to, like Senate Ways and Means uh, putting out that police reform bill the other week, and it hit the floor right away, um, with some arguing it went too fast. Uh, so to, to what extent can lawmakers not blame, but perhaps excuse some, some last-minute uh, hurry to get things done. To what extent can they pin that on the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, I think the pandemic has really is influenced a lot of what's going on. You're right to point out that uh, the legislature has continued to meet, uh, particularly more recently. It did take them a while to figure out how to meet virtually uh, in this new socially distant world where uh, not all members are comfortable or can't even uh, risk coming into the state house and, and being in the same room with their colleagues, even masked for personal health reasons. So uh, once they figure that out, they've been able to move some things, but a whole crop of new priorities came up. There was uh, pandemic relief packages to pass. There was tax, they extended the tax deadline to July 15th with which just uh, just arrived this week. Uh, we've seen restaurant bailout bills. Uh, we're uh, anticipating some uh, to-go takeout cocktails uh, to soon become law if the governor signs that bill after the legislature got it done this week. So, you know, we've also seen, and you're going to talk about this more, but the big issue we thought we'd be debating right now, I would have uh, put my uh, money on it, was uh, the whole issue of taxes for transportation. And uh, presumably that bill would have been probably in conference this week. Uh, we'd be uh, talking about where they stand, uh, what the differences are between the House and Senate. Uh, instead, uh, you know, the Senate basically pulled the plug on the idea of new revenues because the state's financial picture is in such disarray and there's so much uncertainty uh, caused uh, by the COVID-19 shutdowns. Uh, and we still don't know. We're actually... Uh, now in the middle of July, two weeks into the new fiscal year, and the House, which would have debated its budget in April, hasn't even produced an FY21 budget proposal. So a lot of uncertainty caused by the pandemic. But it wouldn't be an end of session uh, if there weren't some surprises. So I'm not about to write any uh, big pieces of legislation off just yet. Right. Scrambling and surprises, both normal for the end of July. And you make a good point, Matt, that perhaps it's not that the pandemic interrupted the timeline for things getting done so much as the pandemic sucked the oxygen out of the room in terms of all these uh, sessions having to focus on legislative responses to the virus and to the economic uncertainty that it created. Um, 
It did. And, you know, a couple things that also happened. Uh, we were talking uh, back uh, before pre-pandemic. Uh, we probably would have been talking transportation revenue. We certainly would have been talking climate change. Uh, the governor had filed some legislation. The speaker had filed uh, some bills. The Senate uh, passed some new climate goals and emission targets. That would have been a big end of session push. Still could be. Uh, but the Senate uh, has not taken up the House's bills. The House has not taken up the Senate bills. And it looks like we're running out of time. Uh, housing was another big issue that we thought we'd be uh, talking about right now. And the governor's housing choices bill. He's still pushing that, for like, it. I think just could, last week we heard him reiterating, hey, we can still get this done. And it still can get done, but it kind of fell away uh, from uh, the focus of Beacon Hill as they focused on responding to the pandemic. And then you had... George Floyd and the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis, which sparked, of course, protests across the country over police brutality, including here in Boston and cities like Brockton and Lawrence and Lowell and across Massachusetts. And that has thrust this whole idea of policing reform to the forefront. And that is the big bill that everyone is wondering, uh, can they get it done? Uh, the Senate last week, a meeting until, uh, you know, uh, you were up with me and Chris Van Buskirk until, uh, you know, they adjourned at like 4.15 in the morning, uh, finally passing that sweeping law enforcement bill. That 16 would... hours and 40 minutes is how long that session was, Matt. And I know you felt yeah. it. <laughs> I, I've been afraid to even do the math on it. It's, uh, it's kind of kept me sleepy for the rest of the week. But, you know, that whole idea of licensing police and we put Massachusetts in the company of the vast majority of other states around the country, this is something that the governor wants, something that the Black and Latino Legislative Caucus wants now. And the big question, can the House and Senate get on the same page before the end of the month to get it done? Sure. And one other bill that they got over the finish line uh, late in this session was a response to how the pandemic will affect our elections this fall. And I know I've been seeing photos uh, from some of our own reporters even who have been getting those, those um, mail-in ballot applications in the mail. My wife and I got them today. They came in through the mail slot, a nice little fold-out card uh, application that I could send in and request a ballot uh, to vote in the September 1st primary. So uh, Secretary Galvin, after some uh, back and forth, let's call it, with the legislature over whether or not he had enough money to do this uh, legally mandated mailing, uh, he got them in the mail and they are arriving in time uh, for people to request this new uh, expanded mail-in uh, ballot voting system that the states implemented uh, for the uh, pandemic 2020 elections. So what's getting lost in this COVID four-month news cycle? What What's happening that's unrelated to the virus that's being overshadowed? Besides, you, you mentioned elections and campaigns and that sort of thing, but is there something that we might have been hearing more about or people might be making a bigger deal about if it weren't for, if it weren't for COVID? I mean, that's a great question, and I think... I mean, I think uh, of I th like... Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no go ahead. Um, I think of Sal DeMacy coming back to Beacon Hill. I mean, that's, that's a big deal as far as Beacon Hill is concerned. Yeah, uh, certainly. Sal DeMacy winning his appeal against Secretary Galvin that would allow him to register as a lobbyist and come back to Beacon Hill, uh, that would be a big thing. Uh, the other big story that happened right before we all went into lockdown... Uh, Representative David Nangle, a Lowell Democrat, a member of uh, Speaker DeLeo's leadership team, indicted 
uh, on multiple federal charges related to what the U.S. attorney called gambling debts and his addiction to uh, casino gambling in, in other states. Uh, this would have been a big story. Instead, it's kind of fallen under the radar. And uh, Nagel's actually going to appear on the ballot in September. So uh, we'll see what happens. All right, Matt. And the big question on everyone's minds, and there have been a lot of rumors and a lot of buzz going around about what people think is going to happen. But you mentioned the budget isn't even out of House Ways and Means yet. And they had extended their deadline from April to July 1st to do that one. Uh, and that deadline blew past and, and they didn't even really acknowledge that. Um, so with the most important constitutionally mandated piece of legislation still on the to-do list uh, and all these other things that have been identified as priorities. Are we going to see formal sessions after July 31st? That is the big uh, $100 million question, Sam. And I think I'm going to go out on a limb here and I am I, I stand ready to be proven wrong, but I'm going to say Yes. Uh, the question is, what will it look like? And this is uh, uh, unprecedented in recent memory. I've never seen it uh, in, in my you know, 15 plus years uh, working on Beacon Hill, uh, the idea of going past this July 31st deadline. Uh, but at this point, with two weeks left, the idea of getting a budget done uh, that the governor could sign before July 31st uh, looks uh, really unlikely. So at the very least, I think you may see them uh, create uh, some sort of system where they will reconvene at some point uh, to take up uh, an FY21 calendar year budget. Uh, the question is, will they extend the legislative calendar to deal with other priorities, things that we talked about, like the climate change stuff, like the raft of healthcare bills dealing with drug pricing and mental health reform and, and, and uh, other issues that the Senate passed that have yet to surface in the House. The speaker, the speaker has said that he's still very much interested in those. It's just hard to see a lot of this getting done in the next two weeks when none of these are even in conference committee yet. But we will see. So I think you'll see some kind of extension. The question is whether or not it will be limited uh, to a, a subject matter or two, or if it will be broad, and they'll just keep meeting. And those health care bills that you mentioned are also kind of caught up in a House-Senate personality dispute, or I don't, I don't know what you would refer to it as. Well, I, I think you can say that the House and Senate don't appear to be uh, operating on the same page a lot these days, and, and that extends to the, the policing reform bill we've, we've seen um, some divergence there in how they're approaching the policing bill and, and the process. But, uh, you know, sometimes uh, a, a deadline will focus the mind. And uh, I think they're going to try and, and get some of this stuff done in the next two weeks. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad to be back talking with you on Fridays where we can uh, just pull it all apart. All right. Thanks for joining us, Matt. And uh, stay tuned, folks, because coming up after this break, it is Chris Lasinski, along with a trio of transportation advocates. So we were just talking with Matt Murphy about the position that Beacon Hill finds itself in as July winds down. And 
All that remains to be done by month's end. Uh, lawmakers are in the home stretch on a major transportation bond bill starting in on private conference negotiations for uh, working out the differences between the House's version and the uh, Senate's version. Um, so to talk about transportation specifically um, and investments in Massachusetts transit infrastructure, we've got a few uh, expert guests on the takeout this Friday. We have uh, Chris Dempsey, Director of Transportation for Massachusetts. We have Livable Streets Executive Director Stacy Thompson, and Transit Matters Chief Operating Officer Jared Johnson. Thanks for joining us, folks. Leading us off with, uh, with questioning from the Statehouse News Service is uh, Chris Lisinski. Um, and, and Chris, it's, it's been a while since we've seen you in person up here at the Statehouse in this pandemic era, but it's good to be with you virtually. Sure has. And as we all know, the news has not taken some time off during the pandemic era. Uh, so it seems like forever ago, but really it was only four months ago that we were all talking about the House's transportation package. One bill with more than half a billion dollars in new taxes and fees and the other bill borrowing uh, about $18 billion to invest in the state's transportation system. What ended up happening was as soon as the pandemic hit, all attention on Beacon Hill shifted toward responding to that, and transportation legislation sat basically untouched for the ensuing four months until last week, when the Senate finally made clear that it was bringing up a transportation bond bill, but only a transportation bond bill, leaving untouched that uh, crucial package of gas tax, corporate minimum excise tax, Uber and Lyft fee increases, and application of the sales tax to rental car purchases. Um, the initial sense I got from a lot of folks in the advocacy community, including some of our guests here today, was frustration that this was a missed opportunity for the Senate not to take up what the House had already done. Um, why, why is that the reaction, though? And why doesn't the argument that Senator Joseph Boncori, the, the Senate's lead transportation committee member, made uh, stick with you folks? Why does the, the legislature need to increase taxes and fees right now in the midst of a pandemic? Um, could you say a little bit more about how, for instance, the gas tax wouldn't be a strain on commuters at a time where we've got so much economic uncertainty? Chris, we had State Rep Andy Vargas join a meeting of ours a few weeks ago, and I think he said it really well. What he said was, we knew before the pandemic that transportation needed new resources and that the pandemic has only reduced the amount of revenue available for all of our state needs. So, of course, now we need more revenue more than ever. When you look at something like the gas tax, obviously, it's something that legislators need to be thoughtful about when we have high unemployment and people are struggling. That is absolutely true. At the same time, our gas tax is 33rd in the country, and gas prices are 50 or 60 cents lower than they were three months ago when the House supported a five cent increase. Even if the Senate decides that was not the right approach for them, we feel like it was incumbent upon them to suggest other ways to invest in our transportation system. And that's why we said, and many others said, that this week's vote was a missed opportunity. Absolutely. And, you know, and I think another point is that, you know, the uh, the last height uh, that we saw in transit ridership uh, was in the Great Recession. And we, you know, by all stretches, um, you know, seem to be heading towards that or perhaps worse. And so we really need transit to be in a good shape 
um, you know, to make sure that, um, you know, that we have the capacity that we need because, you know, it, you know, although no one can predict the future, you know, I, I strongly believe that, you know, when, when the pandemic is over, people will, people will come back to transit. People are, are, are already coming back to transit. And I think we're going to see the highest ridership that we've seen in some time. And so not, um, you know, not fixing our system now when we have the chance is really going to be a missed opportunity. Yeah, and I'm I'm gonna pile on and agree with my colleagues and just add, um, you know, it's we still want to see this bond bill pass. There are nuggets of hope, <laughs> things that we do like that I'm sure we'll get into, but that doesn't change the day-to-day -day reality that um, the MBTA was probably one of the most vital, if not the most vital, systems running to get people to the hospital, to get people essential workers to their jobs, to enable folks to stay home and not drive their cars, for example. Um, and those needs won't go away. Uh, so, you know, I would echo that, but I would also say that you know, one of my talking points pre-pandemic about the gas tax was that uh, global phenomena had much more to do with how much someone paid at a pump in Massachusetts than our gas tax, um, you know, building on Chris's point. And that instability is, and people not knowing how much an asset or how much their travel and transportation costs will cause them is a, a greater risk for, for low-income folks. And so, by not improving our transit system, by not increasing the stability and reliability of our roads, bridges, and transit systems, we are compounding the inequities in our system. We're not giving people a break by not charging five cents on the gas tax. It's just, it's not a one-to-one -one equivalent. Yeah. Now, as this heads into a, a likely conference committee, which uh, to the best of my knowledge, hasn't been established yet, but with only two weeks to go until the end of formal sessions, lawmakers are going to have to do this quickly. Uh, we've got competing viewpoints here on just how much borrowing is really appropriate, given the fact that the uh, related revenue package has been laid aside for the time being. Um, Bill Strauss, the, the House Chair of the Transportation Committee, has told me that he doesn't think that a state can afford to borrow and spend $18 billion without any revenue backstopping it. That's something that we heard the governor argue against four months ago. Um, how, how much can the state really responsibly afford to bond with its existing revenues amid a pandemic and a recession? Where do you guys fall on that spectrum? Jared, do you want to take that or do you want me to jump in? Jump in first. Great. So what I would say is, candidly, I am not an expert, but I think that, um, you know, this, this question around do we have enough revenue for bonding um, does not sit in isolation and um, should be part of a larger conversation that I, we know the legislature is going to have um, around the overall financial health of the state. And so I would say, you know, I leave it um, to, to those folks to, I, I hope, take the advice from the folks on this, um, in this space and, you know, potentially, you know, fulfill our hopes and dreams to take on a, a revenue package. Um, but having said that, I would say everything that is in the bond bill is desperately needed. And so I don't think that the response should be, we don't have enough revenue, so we should bond around, bond for less. What we should say is, what do we need to fortify the transportation systems both now and in the future? This bond bill is a piece of that, and we must make sure that we can support that. Um, you know, nickel and diming and sort of uh, pulling back is not what we should be doing at this moment. We need more, and we need more now. And transit is, is an investment, and, and I mean that in a literal sense, in that in that the money that that you put into into transit, uh, into fixing uh, our existing roads and bridges, 
um, is money that, that you get back, you know, in terms of uh, of productivity that, that's gained from folks having shorter commutes uh, in terms of the fact that we, you know, again, we're, we're headed towards likely um, or almost certainly a recession and could be even worse in terms of putting people to, to work, um, you know, building those, you know, building those roads and bridges, um, building those, those train systems, building the bus, um, you know, that's, you know, like I said, it, it, it's, it's an investment. And so I think we need to think about it uh, from that perspective. Like, like, like Stacey said, all of these projects are needed. This is not a fanciful wish list. These are projects that have been needed for, uh, in some cases, for decades. Chris, you brought up this question of affordability. And I, I think that the House is going to say, essentially, that because it hasn't been supported with new revenue, that the number needs to be lower. And I think they're very right in one sense, and then maybe not so right in another they're absolutely right that the resources are not there to support all of the spending that we need to do in transportation. And so we respect their view to say, we can't afford such a generous investment package or authorization package. But then let's also make sure we're very clear that a bond bill does not actually mean spending. A bond bill is authorizations for governors to spend. What the governors actually spend, whether it's this governor or a future governor, because this is a multi-year bill, is based on the state's bond cap. And that is set based on the revenue that is actually coming into the state. And so no one really knows the answer of what that bond cap might look like in two or three years, because we don't yet know the total revenue impact from COVID-19 and the downfall in the economy since then. So we need to be very clear that just because the Senate has passed this bill doesn't actually mean that there's more money in the system. In fact, it's very much a status quo bill at best that's if we were having the revenue come in, we've had come in in the past, but all expectations is that we might actually get less because of the economic downturn. I wanna, I wanna speak just a little bit specifically about the, the bill to clear the Senate on Thursday. One part in this that drew uh, the most action on the floor was the authorization for regional ballot initiatives. These are local questions that a, a city or town could authorize by a, a ballot question within its borders to increase a tax locally and use the revenue on transportation projects. We saw Methuen Senator Diane DiZaglio push pretty, uh, pretty powerfully to try and strip that from the bill with the backing of some of the Senate's Republicans, arguing that small businesses are already hurting too much from the pandemic and that any other opportunities for tax increases will just add to that pressure that they're all experiencing. Clearly, the majority didn't buy that. This was an amendment that was rejected 31 to 8. So that language remained enshrined in the bill. Why do you think that the, uh, the Senate decided to reject calls to, to strip this from the bill so easily? Chris, we can go Sorry, ahead. Yeah. I'll, I'll throw it to you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll jump in on this. Look, this is an idea that the Senate has passed in multiple sessions already. So there's sort of longstanding and known support in the Senate for this idea. We were really glad to see it actually come to a roll call vote and have such overwhelming support. I think that's a good thing. This House has traditionally been more skeptical of regional ballot initiatives. But I'll tell you what, 2020 is a pretty weird year. And maybe this is the year it finally gets done. There's for many years been talk of a trade on this issue. The House has supported regional ballot initiatives. Sorry, the House has supported value capture. The Senate has supported regional ballot initiatives. They both have similarities in terms of raising dollars and spending dollars locally on transportation. We sort of say, why not both? Let's do them together. Let's give cities and towns more tools to make those local investments. You know, not every single transportation dollar needs to be filtered through Washington, D.C. or Beacon Hill to have the right impact. 
let's give mayors and town managers and select boards the ability to make these investments themselves with the approval of their voters. Yeah, and I would I would just add, you know, Massachusetts is actually an, an outlier in terms of allowing regional ballot initiatives. You know, some of the best transit projects in the country, um, including uh, the great um, uh, light rail system that's going down in uh, Seattle, are the result of regional ballot initiatives. So we are, you know, sort of holding ourselves back from using a mechanism that has been proven um, very successful in other parts of the country. Yeah. And their support in 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 local towns, you know, I, I, I've, I've talked to mayors uh, who've said, you know, if this passes, I'm ready to go and talk to mayors up and down this commuter rail line to talk about how we can um, how we can stand together and how we can make uh, improvements. I'm going to move us ahead now. I want to leave us enough time to do sort of a, a zoomed out look at next session, assuming that, you know, now that the Senate didn't include it in its bond bill, the, the revenue question is effectively dead for this year. Once we get to 2021, we have a new two-year session for the legislature, perhaps a few changes in office, though we expect the vast majority of lawmakers to retain their seats since they don't face any opponents. Uh, what are you expecting on the transportation front? Do you think that it will be possible at all to reset the momentum that we saw earlier this year around raising new revenues to, to fix roads and highways in public transit. Is there any appetite left to start this process over basically from scratch after how much work went into it just to get us to where we are today? You know, I don't think we're going to have an option. Uh, and that's hard. I think that's hard to hear. But um, as Chris has said over and over and over again, and I fully agree that unless we raise revenue and unless we do something, the congestion is coming back and it's worse. Our transit system and our roads and bridges are crumbling and it's going to get worse. In the context of an economic downturn, it's not going to be something we'd like to do or want to do. There will be an urgency and, and frankly, a moral obligation to take action. So um, I um, look forward to talking to many folks in the House and the Senate in the next session because um you know, I am optimistic, like I said, about a, a few great pieces, including the Complete Streets funding um, and a few other policies that are really fantastic in the bond bill. But we have a lot of work to do, and I'm ready for it. I agree. I agree. I think Stacey said it perfectly. And, you know, and, and we're, we're already starting to see, you know, I, I'm, a number of folks keep tweeting, you know, the, the pictures of 93 you know, almost same as it was. So, you know, I I, I don't think this is something that, that's going to magically go away. You know, obviously there will be, you know, a larger uh, percentage of folks that will work from home, but for, but for the vast majority of folks, you know, they will need to come back to their offices, you know, bef you know, if, if, if not once the pandemic ends, even before it ends uh, in different stages. And of course we have our essential workers who, who have never stopped going to work. Um, who have never stopped using using transit or having to use the roads because there's not good transit uh, in their in their regions, especially uh, those regions outside of Boston. So, um, yeah, you know, I, I don't think this, that this is um, a, a, an issue that's just going to magically disappear just because the pandemic happened. Chris, of course, I agree with my colleagues here that this is an issue that is not going away and we're going to be ready to fight in 2021. But I think we haven't yet given up on this session. First of all, you've got a conference committee that's going to form that has some really meaty proposals before it. Yes, there were more on the House side than the Senate side, but each House, each chamber contributed what it could. And I think there's a robust conversation that needs to happen and maybe a good bill that comes out in the next couple of weeks. 
And then I also hear, and you hear this more than I do, Chris and Sam, that there will be a conversation around the budget in the fall. And when budget writers are looking to solve a multi-billion dollar gap in the state budget, transportation sourced revenues should absolutely be a part of that solution. When our gas tax is 33rd in the country, we just got passed by Alabama and Tennessee. And when budget writers are going to want to look to multiple tools to spread the pain, if they do look to raising revenue, transportation needs to be part of that conversation. So 2021 for me is a long way ahead in the calendar. I think we have a lot more work to do before December 31st to do our jobs well as transportation advocates. Let me push back here just a little bit. Obviously, our our esteemed panelists here have all been among the voices calling for years to to raise more money for our transportation system. But all of that happened before we hit worst in the nation unemployment, hit a two to eight billion dollar state budget gap, hit all sorts of economic strain that no one could have predicted. Doesn't that alter the conversation here at all a little bit? Does that make it more difficult to push for gas tax increases that, uh, as far as I understand it, would be a, a fairly regressive model? Does that give you pause in any way, the, the, the economic climate that we're currently working through? You know, I, I'm going to jump in on this one um, in part because at Livable Streets, we have been working very closely with a number of partners um, in some of the most impacted communities around COVID. And I always balk at this idea that um, we are comfortable uh, claiming that people um, who can afford a car are most impacted by, um, who are most impacted by the gas tax, certainly, um, you know, in a purely um, definitional way, you can call it regressive. But um, the impacts, whether we're talking about air quality, whether we're talking about the climate, whether we're talking about congestion, um, that that we are putting on our most vulnerable are real and tangible. And and we are we, we um, you know this is not about five cents. This is not about ten cents. And I think that we are missing the point entirely. And separately, you know, our reports show that that black bus riders, on average, spend sixty four more hours annually on that bus. And that statistic is not getting better in this moment. Um, and so every time you know I bring that up, people are horrified, but they don't feel a moral obligation. They bring up five cents on the gas tax, people freak out. I think we need to be focused on the problems we're trying to solve and to have comprehensive um, and diverse streams of revenue to get us there. And I think that things like the gas tax, like TNC fees, um, like many of the other proposals that groups like T4MA have been advocating for for years, again, comprehensive packages with progressive complementary policies are a win-win and are necessary. Um, Cherry picking one policy that we don't like and saying it's, it's regressive misses the point. Absolutely. And, you know, make no mistake about it. You, you know, the, the the pandemic has been made worse by our transportation choices. You know, the communities hit the hardest by COVID are the ones who live along our highways, you know, that we have we have not, um, you know, we've not pushed hard enough for incentives for electric vehicles that we've not provided those drivers with um, low carbon, you know, modes of transportation like bus and commuter rail. Uh, and so we really we owe it to essential workers. Essential workers don't want you to clap for them. They 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 want they, they, you know, they want pay, they want better pay, they, they want to be able to get to their job on time and not be stuck in traffic. And so we owe it to those folks. And so that is the, that's the impact that I'm thinking about when I think about, you know, this pandemic and sort of how it's shifted things. It, it has said to me, wow, 
you know, commuter ridership has dropped 95%. What does that tell us about um, who we've been having this very expensive transportation asset that we've been, you know, we've been using it so narrowly when it goes through so many uh, communities with essential workers and with people of color um, that can't get on those trains because the price is too high and the, and the, the, um, the schedules don't work. You know, this is to me an opportunity for us to use, um, you know, like to use that asset, for example, like commuter rail um, to to provide a relief valve uh, for some of the, the buses that are going through Chelsea, Everett, Revere, Dorchester. So like I said, that's that's how I um, that's how I see this pandemic changing things. It's it's made it uh, it's made the the moral imperative even more clear that we have to transform uh, our transportation system. Chris, I don't think anyone would disagree with you that the climate is now more difficult for things like a gas tax or any kind of revenue at all. But as we put ourselves, try to, in the shoes of Chairman Rodriguez or Chairman Mikowitz, who are facing a really difficult job with the state budget in the months ahead, they're going to have to make some of these tough choices and choose some of the least bad options. And if transportation revenues can play a role in preserving some of that regional transit authority bus service, so that someone can still get to their job that otherwise wouldn't if that bus service is cut, that can fund road and bridge funding in communities across the Commonwealth, Chapter 90 funding, which means that that construction company stays in business because they get that one more contract that keeps them afloat, or that fixes a bridge in Western Massachusetts where today a driver has to go 15 or 20 miles out of their way to go around it and spend more on gas and more in their in wasted time because of that, because that bridge isn't fixed. Those are the things that happen when we don't have the resources for the budget. It's about preventing and, pre- and cuts and preserving the services that we have. I don't think anyone is saying that we need to hike up taxes for a bold, expansive, expansive vision of what, what the future can look like. It's about preserving the basic prov- uh, provision of services that government has in transportation, fixing the basics and in infrastructure, keeping that going, and preventing the job losses and the economic downturn that happens when you don't make those investments. Final piece of the landscape here that I, that I want to get into is the income surtax. Uh, when we return to the topic next year, if that happens, of revenues, we'll be in the same two-year lawmaking session that the House and Senate uh, coming together will take their final vote to put on the ballot, a uh, ballot question that would put a 4% surtax on household income above $1 million and direct all of that funding toward education and toward transportation. If we assume that the estimates of supporters to say are correct that that would raise $2 billion a year. You're looking at $1 billion a year for transportation, uh, nearly double what the House's package this session would have raised. Why isn't that enough? When we had this session's vote on it, the the second to last step in the process, Republicans argued that it was uh, overlapping with this push for for higher gas tax, higher corporate minimum excise taxes. Why do you need both? Why isn't $1 billion a year for transportation sourced directly from wealthy income enough to face the, uh, the challenges that we have? I'll jump in here. I know Stacey has thoughts to add too. Tiefer Mass has been supportive of the fair share amendment for years now and will continue to be so. I think that it, it could provide substantial revenue for transportation, but we also know that the needs in our state in education are vast, especially with the bill that passed the legislature uh, late last year, or earlier this year, that sort of laid out the future of education funding in Massachusetts. And so we're under no illusion that Um, If and when that ballot initiative passes, that all of those dollars are going to transportation, I think there needs to be a conversation about the use of those dollars and how they will be used. 
But I think Stacy probably wants to jump in. She already hinted at needing to look holistically about what we're trying to achieve in transportation. Go ahead, Stacey. Yeah. So, you know, like Chris said, we are hugely supportive of um, everything Raise Up is doing. And, uh, you know, the needs for revenue are great and and they are expanding. We all know this. And it's going to be tough for 2021, 2022, 2023. Um, But I think, uh, as many people know me, um, I hate looking at revenue through a myopic lens um, because, the the things that transportation for Massachusetts, livable streets and transit matters advocate for typically around user fees are not just designed to raise revenue. I would say just raising revenue sort of misses the point. Um, we also need to fix problems and we need to close equity gaps. And so you can do that with something like a TNC fee, right? It is actually designed to help um, change behavior, um, send money back to municipalities who can then use those funds to create appropriate waiting spaces for the TNCs, to create more infrastructure so people can walk and bike and access transit. And so um, these user fees in and of themselves are about so much more than raising revenue. And they they contribute to the health and well-being of the state and and to the ability um, for us to close some of these equity gaps that I mentioned earlier. So I think that they're they're, um, a must-have in any good, robust uh, revenue package. I said it better myself. <laughs> well, folks, I think that just about does it for us. Sam, do you have a an outro for us to go through? <laughs> well, I would just say, Chris, that um, we'll see how this conversation plays out, especially as we get toward the end of July and then into the fall. I know Chris Dempsey mentioned um, that there has been some buzz about a budget conversation happening in the fall. So um, we'll definitely see how what, what these expert panelists had to say today uh, plays into what we see play out in the, uh, in the fall months. And as, as Chris Dempsey said, 2020 is a weird year. Um, so we, we never know what might happen or when it might happen. Uh, but thanks very much for joining us, folks. Again, uh, moderating that discussion was uh, Chris Lasinski of the Statehouse News Service. And on the panel, Jared Johnson of Transit Matters, Stacy Thompson of Livable Streets, and Chris Dempsey of Transportation for Massachusetts. Thanks for joining us. Statehouse Takeout is a production of the Statehouse News Service. And for a daily fix of Statehouse headlines, visit masterlist.com. Masterlist with two S's. Thanks again for listening. See you next week.